Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. And welcome to the Transfer Window. This is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis of the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On today's Transfer Podcast. We're next for the unemployed Portuguese management duo of André Villas-Boas and Jose Mourinho. We ask what on earth Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was doing playing Luke Shaw at centre-back against Barcelona. Pep Guardiola suffers another away defeat to the business end of Europe's premier competition. Is the Catalan maestro overthinking his tactics against inferior opposition? And with Chelsea and Liverpool set to clash at the weekend, we look at the two teams' candidates for Player of the Year. Well, we're going to start with some news. Uh, we have some information, well, Duncan does, about Josie Mourinho and uh, some interest in where he's going to take his services. Duncan, what's the latest? Um, yeah, this is that um, AS Roma um, are, have approached Mourinho um, to find out whether he'd be interested in, in taking over as manager next season. Um, they currently have Claudio Ranieri in charge in a, a short-term contract um, who uh, they are hoping will get them qualification for the Champions League. But there's a um, huge amount of unrest at the club. Obviously, they made the semi-finals of the Champions League last year and were actually quite unfortunate to go out in the end. I mean, they, you've, you've seen the um, Roma president uh, or owner, chief owner, um, James Pelotta, uh, complaining after they got knocked out in this season's Champions League that they, they went out because of bad decisions um, two years running and, and he feels that they should have gone through against Liverpool in the, the semi-final second leg last season. But um, this season has been extremely poor, knocked out by Porto in the first knockout round, um, struggling to qualify from Serie A for a Champions League place. And the supporters um, do not like the kind of remote... Um, American ownership of Roma um, and uh, want to see significant changes in the summer. Um, they've looked at the market, um, they've seen Mourinho is available, um, that Paris Saint-Germain will not be in, employing him, that Real Madrid have gone with Sudan and have done actually what they did um, when he was uh, sat by Chelsea um, in 2016 or 2015, he was sacked. But uh, they were the first club at that time um, to set up a meeting with Mourinho to see if he'd be interested in coming back to Italy at that stage, which he he took and uh, and politely declined. Um, what I'm told is that it is not a job that is of interest to him. Um, I think if he goes back to Serie A, um, the 
the job that he's most likely to take is Internazionale um, because it's the club he uh, coached before and won two titles in two seasons, did uh, the unprecedented um, treble uh, of uh, Serie A, Coppa Italia um, and Champions League with Inter before leaving to go to Real Madrid. Um, and he just doesn't feel... Uh, which I think is not surprising if you look at the, the interviews he's done in recent months where he keeps talking about the importance of club structure um, and the importance of support and being in the right environment in which to work. He doesn't feel, I'm told, that Roma would be the right environment um, for him to go uh, and therefore will not um, be taking that opportunity up and will continue to look and see uh, if the right job um, becomes available this summer. He does want to go back into work immediately next season if he can, but still waiting um, for an attractive proposal um, to do that with. I do feel like um, the uh, opportunities for Jose Mourinho are, are kind of diminishing or running out in terms of um, his options. And um, we've seen Officer Real Madrid um, re employ Zidane. Uh, PSG, as you've mentioned, Duncan, are going to give Tuchel an extension on his contract. And I, I wonder, for a guy who's, you know, got such an amazing CV and um, clearly um, wants and is um, innovated to, to work again immediately um, for next season, where he's going to be. Um, <clears throat> Roma, I would have thought, would be not such a bad fit, except for what you said about the ownership. Uh, and obviously, Monchi left to go back to Sevilla, uh, the technical director, and that was something which um, would probably um, make Mourinho a little bit kind of tense or apprehensive about um, about going there. But Roma is a massive club which um, has a, an incredible history. The kind of club which Mourinho's used to managing, to be honest, uh, at Inter, at Real Madrid, um, not so much at Chelsea, I guess, but I, I feel like a sleeping giant which could become um, alive again. Um, they've got good funding behind them and, and therefore uh, the opportunity to, to build a squad, etc., etc. So um, it's interesting that he's not in, he, he doesn't want to do that and I just wonder if his um, opportunities now are looking towards more Germany and and maybe Bayern Munich, because I, I do believe that Kovac will not probably not be the coach next season. And um, Bayern are such a, an institutionalised club, a club where um, you are going to win trophies, you're going to have the opportunity to, to compete for the Champions League. Um, which we know Mourinho wants to win that third one in a different country. Um, so, yeah, I just wonder, uh, when a, a coach like Mourinho turns down opportunities, um, which we know he has done, he must have a plan in mind. And so I'm just wondering if Bayern Munich is the one that he's waiting upon in terms of making that offer. I think he's very conscious that this decision is an important one for his career, um, that he needs to go to a club where he can succeed um, and he can't afford to, to make a bad decision 
Um, I think there's an element of uh, regretting not taking Paris Saint-Germain in 2016 when he had the option between them and Stasis because Pelota has the money to invest in the squad but is is uh, in conflict with the local authorities over the building of a new stadium. And his calculation is that um, it's not worth investing huge sums in the club until he has that new stadium in place and he doesn't have permission from the authorities to build it. So that makes it um, a difficult place to go. Um, and the assessment of the squad is that the squad's not been well structured um, in the year that Monchi uh, has been in charge. Um, it hasn't worked well for them. And you know, there's an interesting element in that Roma are trying to hire Luis Campos as their new tech technical director. And Campos has obviously a good relationship with Mourinho, having worked for him at Real Madrid and doing um, doing the uh, recruitment for him, uh, the scouting for him at Real Madrid. So Roma would like at, at least floated the idea of taking the pair as a job lot. Um, and you would think that would be more attractive to Mourinho to work with someone he trusts uh, in, the, in the technical director position. But uh, his assessment of the club is it's not right for him. And I understand that Campus, while he hasn't made a decision about Roma as yet, also has reservations about whether the, the club is right for him. Um, I mean, interestingly, we should talk about the situation at Inter and that that is that the, the CEO at Inter, um, Pepe Marotta, who is... Uh, hired from Juventus, wants to take Antonio Conte as coach um, and is against um, hiring Mourinho. Uh, but the ownership there like the idea of hiring Mourinho because he would be a popular um, figure with the with the fans and also because of his track record as a manager. So there's, there's an interesting dynamic in whether uh, the Chinese ownership of Inter go with their, their CEO um, and give him the authority to hire the coach, or whether they say, well, Mourinho's available, we should go and do our utmost to get him when we have an opportunity to bring him back to the club. And we've also got some news about uh, Andre Villas-Boas, who's been in the papers up here in Scotland over the last couple of days, Duncan. Yes, um, well, as you know, um, in your new role as editor of Football Scotland, that uh, uh, Villas-Boas um, has been liked with Celtic, um, that uh, the idea would be to bring him in as permanent manager uh, for next season. Um, it's an interesting proposition, um, and I think Celtic are being clever here at looking at, at Vias Boas, who's taken a, a break from football, sabbatical for football, um, but is ready to go back into management next season. He has strong links with Scotland, have, having done... Um, uh, his coaching qualifications with the SFA, spent a lot of time in the country. And he's he's also quite a unusual character in the sense that he has always seen his career as a manager not being concentrated on the big leagues in Europe. Um, he want, he's, he's already coached in Russia, which is something with Zenit St. Petersburg, which is something he wanted to do, uh, what appealed to him, the idea of working in, in Eastern Europe. He's had a, a spell in China. He has an ambition to coach in Brazil. Um, and, and therefore, I think there's a chance because of it, and, and I think Celtic have been clever in asking the question of, would you consider coming to take the Scottish Premier League country, you know, um, and taking charge of the biggest team 
in the country and uh, using your your European football experience as a as a Champions League winner, as an assistant to Jose Mourinho, and as a Europa League winner in his own right at FC Porto at Celtic. So I understand there's been contact um, and a sounding out, but um, perhaps the the fly in the ointment for Celtic is the the breadth of his boss's ambitions because I believe. One of the countries um, he'd like to coach in in the future is Japan. And I, I think if he was to be presented with an opportunity to move to a J-League club, and there has been some interest from the J-League already in the shape of Vissel Kobe, um, who um, big spenders um, signing Andres Iniesta from Barcelona uh, last year. Um, I think if that a good proposal from Japan was put to him, he would favour that ahead of Celtic at this stage in his career. Probably bad news for Ian that he's not going <laughs> to having Diaz boss at Celtic Park are, are slightly diminished. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. It was probably take a little bit of the sting out of the blessed Brendan leaving Ian. Um, well, I'm not sure about that. EVB <clears throat> um, <laughs> has um, a checkered history, let's just say, at um, major clubs. Um, his time at Chelsea and then at Tottenham. Um, it was the case, certainly, that um, players felt like they couldn't relate to him. Um, he was a little bit kind of standoffish, to say the least. Um, I think a club like Celtic, uh, as parochial as it may sound, um, need a manager who can relate to um, the guys that he's in charge of and Generally speaking, that's the case that um, there's a few guys, obviously, that the mainstay of that team are um, very much uh, Celtic players who know the history of the club, who um, a lot of whom um, are uh, relate to, if you like, the um, the way that Celtic is as a club. And I think that Andre Villas-Boas is someone who might not necessarily fitting with that so I'm not sort of particularly sort of bothered if you like about the idea that he would be a good coach for Celtic um, I think he might be well another Ronnie Dea really and um, looking wow. at it well yeah he would be um, I've got a lot of respect for Adrian Villas-Bos in terms of what he's done as a coach and in his career and I've, I, I've known him since he joined Josie at Chelsea but I just don't think that, um, as a fit, Celtic would necessarily be um, one which was um, beneficial on both sides. Duncan, just to touch on something that's actually happening here in Scotland, there's been a number of reports uh, poo-pooing this link between Andre Villas-Boas and Celtic, um, quoting his agent as saying there's there's no interest there. Look, the, the person that's been uh, quoted and uh, described as... Uh, the Esposa's agent, um, it's an individual called Jean-Paul Lares, uh, isn't actually the Esposa's agent. Um, he's a press officer who works for um, the Esposa's agent, um, who is a guy called Carlos Gonçalves, is a, a very prominent um, operator in the Portuguese market with um, quite a high-level clientele. And actually, I think if you look at what he, he says, which is, 
Andre will not be working in Scotland in the foreseeable future and will not be available for comment. It's um, it's one of those kind of statements that you get from press officers who want to um, deflect attention away from the story because foreseeable future can mean anything from uh, from two days to six months, as uh, Theresa May well knows, um, as it suits the the people um, in question and um, and saying he's not available for comment, well, yeah, he doesn't want to talk about it. So I would ignore that. Um, what's important are the decisions that uh, Vias Boas itself makes and uh, the advice he gets from his agent, uh, Carlos Gonzalez. OK, well, we're going to move on now to the Champions League ties of the last couple of days. We're going to start with Manchester United's one-goal defeat by Barcelona. Ian, what did you make of the general Manchester United performance? Was it good enough? That's now four games out of five they've lost. Is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer starting to to see his halo slip somewhat? I think a little bit, yes, Johnny. Um, I thought the performance was lackadaisical, um, considering the uh, magnitude of the game um, against you know Europe's probably best club team at this moment in time they didn't appear to me to be a team who were particularly up for it and motivated um, no shots uh, on target it says an awful lot about a Manchester United team um, who are playing obviously at home and um, under a, a manager who has been promoted obviously to be the permanent coach um, and has history um, and indeed invoked that history in his pre-match press conference um, about his own um, experiences against Barcelona and indeed in Camp Nou, etc., etc. I just I, I was disappointed by the way that they um, they played. I think they were played within themselves. They were not given freedom. I think there was a lot of um, almost inertia uh, in the way that they um, failed to um, pass the ball fluidly from middle third to final third. And they were up against a Barcelona team, which on it, on the night itself was actually fairly, you know, not that good good either. Um, it's a little bit like, um, you know, the Lord Mayor's show, which turns on its on its um, side and, and, and doesn't live up to expectations. Um, it, was a, it was a massive game. Everyone, in, I think, in European football was expecting a, a, a massive spectacle. And then what we got instead was a damp squib um, from from the actual outcome of the game. Uh, Ma- uh, Barcelona themselves did very little wrong. Um, I've seen a lot of criticism in some of the newspapers today about, um, oh, well, they didn't live up to ex- expectations or they were poor, etc., etc. Well, you know what? They, they got out of Manchester with a one-goal lead and they won a match in which they were expected to win, but they did it in a very economical way. And what we know about Barcelona is they can turn it on at Camp Nou and easily win by two or three goals against what was the Manchester United team. And in my um, kind of covering of English football, they were 3-1 to one against to win that match when the game started. I don't think I've ever seen odds that, that long uh, on Man United at home in a, a European tie. And Man United actually, as a team, conformed, conformed to those odds because they never looked at winning a game. 
Yeah, I think there was... Um, I get the sense that a lot of the, the judgment on that game and the, set, and the, the talk about how Manchester United had um, performed well in the second half and had stretched Barcelona. Um, it's kind of based on what uh, a misreading of what Ian has explained in that Barcelona went a goal up after 20 minutes away from home in the first leg of the Champions League quarterfinal. Um, a 1-0 win away from home in the Champions League quarter, in the quarterfinal is usually passage to the next round when you're as superior um, in terms of personnel as Barcelona are. Um, so what they had to do for the rest of the game was uh, wait and take opportunities to score if and when they arose uh, and, and keep Manchester United from scoring against them. Manchester United did not have a shot on target in the entire match. So I don't think many Barcelona players would be coming away from that game thinking they'd underperformed or it was a, it was a poor night. It was job done. Um, it does leave it open to Manchester United. They have beaten Juventus away from home and they have um, famously uh, been, became, become the only club to turn around a 2-0 um, home deficit uh, from a first leg in the Champions League tie and go through against Paris Saint-Germain. So they know they're capable of it. But um, it, it wasn't a good performance again. And um, you know Manchester United, it's a month, it's over a month since they've played well. Their last five games have lost four of them. Um, they were fortunate to win the game they did against Watford at home with Watford out playing them and having the majority of the chances in the match um, and I, I don't have a problem with the way Willy Gunnar Solskjaer set up in the game um, he basically took the you know, if you like the Roberto Di Matteo strategy against Barcelona when you know you're um, outmanned in terms of uh, quality of player. So you um, sit back, play a deep defence and try and use your pace and uh, the individual qualities of your players. And you know, remember, he does have Paul Pogba, who's such a good passer of the ball on the pitch, to, to take a goal on the break. I think, I think his setup um, in terms of formation and strategy was sensible enough, if not, uh, if rather contradictory to the, the Manchester United way and the attack-attack football that Paul Pogba likes to talk about, but it was pragmatic. What I thought was bizarre was to go into a game of that dimension, um, deciding to play a back five and putting Luke Shaw, um, a, a left-back who struggles defensively at the best of times, as a centre-back in against one of the best attacks in European football. Um, for the first time in his entire career, Luke Shaw has never played centre-back before, yet Solskjaer asked him to play left side of a three. On top of that, um, he uses Diogo Dalot uh, on the left side as a wing-back rather than on the right side. Um, and obviously he wanted Dalot in there because of his uh, attacking abilities. Dalot is a better attacking defender than he is a, a defensive player and a great crosser of the ball but he's a right-footed crosser of the ball um, so, he, so he was asking Delors to play out of position against Barcelona and not using that weapon properly he could have had Ashley Young um, play on the left side if he, if he desperately wanted to have Luke Shaw in that central position or he could have moved Shaw um, out to left wing back um, and use Young as a centre-back as he'd done before, or use one of Rojo 
or Phil Jones who were on the bench in their natural position as centre-back. So, bizarre decision, and lo and behold, 19th minute, um, Luke Shaw completely loses Lionel Messi, who runs in behind him, which is something is very familiar uh, with Luke Shaw, as he, he loses track of players, attacking players, and allows them to run in behind him. Um, he then gets drawn, uh, his eyes get drawn to where Messi has gone. Messi crosses over to Luis Suarez, who's running behind him. Uh, Luis Suarez has a free header into the the net, which um, or across the goal, which Luke Shaw manages to divert into the goal. So three consecutive mistakes in the space of 20 seconds in his first appearance as a centre-back against one of the best attacking forces in Europe. They lose the goal and basically the game's decided and maybe the tie's decided. So that, for me, is that's the kind of error you do not want to see a manager making in games of that magnitude, and it's a completely unforced error. There's no need to play Luke Shaw in that situation. It's a huge risk to do it, um, yet he does it, and uh, the outcome is a defeat. And it is something, Duncan, that we've discussed about. <sighs> Solskjaer had a very positive effect on Manchester United in his first 13 games in charge. There's no doubt about that. But Absolutely. Um, but his, his tactical naivety... Um, and his experience thus far in his coaching career. Two spells at Molde and one um, with Manchester United's academy does not put him in the driving seat to coach a team against Barcelona in the Champions League quarter-final. And um, as easy as to say, um, after the event in terms of the game itself, um, I think that there is a... I think, I think there's a, a realistic sense now of um, looking at um, his decision-making, his team selection, and the, um, the way that he's asked his teams to play um, in recent games, and we say four defeats and five, whereby you say, well, if it was someone else with much more experience, would they have put their players and the team in into that um, situation in which they would um, be quite easily overcome. So I think, yeah, there is a, a question now about Solskjaer's um, tactical uh, ability to change games in uh, when the game's in play, but also um, to actually look at a game um, beforehand and say, Right, okay, this is how we can win this match um, rather than um, this is what I'm going to do and hope that we can win this match. And I've, I'm afraid those two things don't quite dovetail um, in terms of what you get in results. Yeah, I think, I think it's been forgotten because the result, the outcome was so good in Paris. But you've got to remember he set up in Paris with, a again, a new system that Manchester United had used under him. Um, which was a very narrow back four with Eric Bailly playing as right back and then Ashley Young playing narrowly in the midfield ahead of him but being asked to drop in as an auxiliary right back when Paris were attacking. And and Paris absolutely took Manchester United to pieces down that um, left wing for the first 25 minutes of the game. So he also did something unexpected and new for the team uh, in a key uh, Champions League tie in Paris and he, he actually got away with it um, 
simply because Bailly got injured and, and, and the system had to be changed and, and because um, Paris made so many stupid errors giving goals away. So this, this isn't just a one-off now. This is two, uh, two big Champions League ties in a row where you have to question um, the decisions he's making, as you say, with preparation time, with thinking time, um, uh, with the opportunity to assess your opponents and work out a plan that's going to best counter them. And, and I, I think you have to say he's handicapped him, his team in both of those games. And that's for all the great stuff he's done um, and all the praise he deserves for turning around the season. These are very significant points to assess him when it goes into his first full season as a manager. Ian, do you reckon that the United board will look back on this decision to appoint Solskjaer um, before the, the end of the season when they could have really assessed all the information as a mistake? Well, I suspect they don't want to do that, Johnny. I suspect they want to put their, um, their uh, sleep masks on at night and just dream that all is going to make it all, all well. Um, but I think the sign's already there. Um, that he's not quite um, the finished article as a coach. Um, we've seen that um, already. Uh, it's easy, easier, I should say, to come in and lift a dressing room, which is very low, and um, tell players to go out and play the way they want to uh, and, and obviously get results. And they did do that. It's much easier to do that than it is to actually plan for a campaign over a whole season whereby you're competing at the highest level in the Premier League, in the Champions League, FA Cup, League Cup. Um, these things um, do not fall easily into someone's lap, regardless of how good a squad you've got. And um, for Solskjaer, um, I think we've definitely um, come to a very um, premature end of his honeymoon period. Um, one which I think maybe you're right in saying that the powers at Manchester United may well have um, been overly eager or, or indeed premature in terms of um, appointing him. They could have taken their time. They could have seen and looked at other coaches before they made that decision. But instead, they've plunged for the popular and populist appointment. And um, and they're stuck with that now. And... Um, you know, it's, it's it's interesting and and also um, I think realistic that people are looking at it now as a, <clears throat> um, a, a you know a, the easy way out for Manchester United to do this now. But what's not easy is the fact that they've now um, appointed and sacked five coaches in five years, and therefore if Solskjaer doesn't last beyond, let's see. October and November in this next season coming up, then the people who made that decision will yet again come under huge scrutiny. Um, and that scrutiny will not um, be uh, in any way um, overlooked by the fans who you know, have been waiting for something better or something better or better again in the last five seasons. Solskjaer was definitely their, their choice, but I think Manchester United fans are a bit more jiggy than that and that they know themselves um, when they've got a manager who can actually take them forward 
and I think there's already a bit of doubt going in there. Just while we're on the subject of Manchester United, guys, I think it's about time we blew our own trumpets because it was April 1st that we did indeed break the news that Andor Herrera was on his way to a... Ta- for, I apologise for the tabloid parlance, but sign a megabucks deal with Paris Saint-Germain. And uh, we broke that, as we, as I say, several days ago. So... Uh, you guys be aware that whenever there's a big story, the transfer window will always be on it and on it early. Well done, Donkey. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. Perhaps, Ian, we should consider putting Donkey in for the Donkey Awards next week. No, come on. What did I say about what someone said? Why is he so weird? I told you, he's, the reason he's so weird is he gets things right too often. So, um, you know, the, the yeah. fact that Ander Herrera's story has been followed up by um, every media organisation in the country. And indeed, it's effectively confirmed that he will join PSG. It's no surprise to us on the transfer window because we know that uh, Dr. Castles gets it right. Well, uh, from one side of Manchester to the other um, and one bout of unhappiness over a result to a similar situation after Pep Guardiola's men uh, at City lost 1-0 to Spurs in their brand spanking new stadium. Ian, what was your take on the game? I thought City were pretty poor and uh, just about deserved to get spanked. Spanked 1-0. <laughs> uh, no, well, spanked 1-0 is, a, a, I suppose, a kind of relative um, measure of spanking. Um, so I'll leave you to what that was yourself, Johnny. Um, 50 Shades of McGarry. Yeah, 50 Shades of spanking. Yeah. Um, look, I... <coughs> I've spoken to some people um, who are, I trust and are very well connected with Manchester City um, in the um, sort of uh, aftermath of that first leg of the quarterfinal Champions League. And my impression is that they believe that, that Pep Guardiola doesn't trust his players enough to um, go out and play a game under that amount of pressure, that amount of scrutiny um, in a year when they're chasing an unprecedented quadruple. Um, and therefore, he, he, he picked a team, which I think we were all quite surprised in terms of his team selection, but also a game plan which we were all unfamiliar with. And... Um, and I have to say, I, I, I agree with those people who I've spoken to in that, that Guardiola doesn't trust his players enough to just simply go out and do their jobs. Um, that would be the easiest thing to do, would be to pick a team that he knows is going to go and win a game. It would be a team who know what the game plan is because it's the normal um, Manchester City game plan where they go out and they dominate possession, they make chances and they create chances and they uh, win the game by simply scoring more goals than the, the opposition. Instead, um, when it gets to these games where um, there is so much scrutiny on Guardiola, in this case at a Champions League quarterfinal against a, a UK rival, in this case Tottenham, last year it was Liverpool, um, and he did the same thing. He changed his formation, changed his game plan, and um, and ended up being thoroughly um, whitewashed uh, against Liverpool. And, OK, it was only 1-0 against Spurs, but 
a, a game where you'd have expected Manchester City to win. So um, I, I, it's, it's, it's odd from my point of view. Um, I've been someone, that, as we all have, a student of Guardiola for um, many years now. And, and also, of course, of his um, incredible triumphs at Barcelona. But Barcelona, it seemed to me, the team picked itself. And they, they, there was no reason for him to get overly involved in tactics and, and game phase play, etc., etc. But when he went to Bayern Munich, he didn't achieve the same results in um, Champions League. And it's now the same at Manchester City. And I think there's a pattern now developing with um, with Pep that you know he needs to micromanage maybe too much um, and therefore that's causing problems for his players because his players are asking questions now of what the coach is demanding of them rather than just simply saying oh we'll go and play our game and, and we'll get the right result so it's intriguing but it's also I think it's, what it is is <coughs> excuse me it's proposing a difficulty for um, Manchester, Manchester City as a club and as a team, who um, are trying to obviously do what the owners want them to do, and that is to win the Champions League. Look, it was a, for me. It was a game of margins. It could have, like a lot of Champions League ties, it could have gone either way on little small details. Um, I don't think one nil to Tottenham was an unfair result, um, but. If Manchester City had won 1-0, scoring the penalty that they shouldn't have had, another ridiculous um, VAR intervention in a Champions League tie, uh, which bemused just about everyone in the stadium, including all the players. Not a single player appeals for a penalty, uh, yet VAR intervenes and gives one. Um, if they'd scored that goal, then you would, you would see Manchester City coming away with it. But there's no doubt Ian's right that Guardiola changed his tactics for that match. He moved um, away from the, the system that's won City eight games in a row um, as they chase down Liverpool in the Premier League and, and won most of them immediately. Um, you know, won most of them inside the first ten minutes. Uh, played four-two-three-one. Played very defensively, I think, cautiously in the match, played as though he would be happy to come away from that game with a nil-nil um, or at least um, sit back and, and, and take a goal in the break. And it's telling that he keeps on doing this in Champions League ties. Um, uh, some statistics came out uh, yesterday that he's only won six out of 26 away Champions League knockout ties in his entire career. What I think it comes down to is this. He hasn't won the Champions League since 2011. His reputation was built on that Champions League winning team. He went to Bayern Munich, inherited to his chagrin a, a Champions League winning team because he had already uh, agreed to join them in the December uh, before they won the Champions League against the expectations of Bayern themselves and was supposed to come in to be the guy who turned them back into Champions League winners. And suddenly he inherited a side that had won the title and won the Champions League, and that made it more difficult for him. He went through those three seasons without getting close um, to winning another Champions League, had a couple of notable disasters in Champions League uh, knockout ties. He then goes to Manchester City, again inherits a squad better than any other squad domestically, gets knocked out in the first season by Monaco, making some ridiculous tactical decisions in their way leg, um, 
where he didn't have the right personnel and decides to go on the front foot against the Monaco side who were absolutely set up to play counter-attacking football, took advantage of them, knocked them out. Then goes to Liverpool, um, again a far inferior squad, gets destroyed 3-0 in the first leg by um, hugely altering Manchester City's set-up to the extent that the players clearly didn't know um, what they were doing in the field. They, they, they were expecting to be able to pass to players who they, they were used to being in set positions in the field. They weren't there. They ended up dribbling in their own half, getting caught by Liverpool players and, and the three goals finished it off. And it, there's no doubt it's in his head that he keeps messing these ties up or his team keeps failing in these ties and he is expected to win the Champions League. He's expected by the general public to win it. He's expected by his players to be the guy who guides them to win it. And most importantly, he's expected by Abu Dhabi, who have paid him more than any manager in history and given him better resources than any manager in history, redesigned the club entirely to attract him there and to help him to win the Champions League and to give Abu Dhabi their first European Cup. And he's not delivered it yet. And maybe you won't even get the chance to deliver it next season because as things stand, they're at risk of being kicked out of the competition. So by no means are they out. Um, you can easily see him turning it around uh, in the second leg. They have better players than Tottenham. In principle, they should beat them. But this pattern of making stupid mistakes, uh, unnecessary mistakes in key games is an important one in his career and something he has to change if he is to earn um, the title that lots of people want to give him of being the greatest coach in world football. Because the greatest coach does not consistently get beaten by inferior squads in the top competition in club football. And that's what Guardiola has been doing since he left Barcelona. Okay, it's time now for our legendary quickfire round. And today, given we are looking ahead to a weekend clash between Chelsea and Liverpool, that will go some way in deciding where the destination of the Premier League title is, we're going to look at the players, first of all, with Ian at Chelsea, who could be up for Player of the Year, and then Duncan's going to give us some Liverpool contenders. So, Ian, on you, is there anyone that's been playing well enough under Maurizio Sarri to be in consideration for either the player of the year or the young player of the year? Well, I think there's an obvious contender um, in Aiden Hazard, um, a player who has been consistently brilliant for Chelsea, um, someone who uh, I think even just what we saw um, in this last week in terms of his individual goals uh, and um also, the, the, his assist uh, record as well. Um, he just basically is is without any kind of um, uh, equal in terms of the way that he does things. And um, that goal know, against it, West Ham, the ultimate example of that, Ian. Yeah, yeah, I think it was, but um, not just that, Johnny. It's just a case of that he's been doing it for seven years now, and. Um, it's no coincidence that at 28 years old, Real Madrid want to make him their you know, star player for next season because he has everything in his locker to do that. So uh, in terms of player of the year, if it's a Chelsea candidate, I think it's him. Um, bizarrely and ironically, 
if it's Young Player of the Year, Callum Hudson-Odoi has to get a mention. Um, a guy who made his first start for England, having not made his first start for Chelsea in, uh, in a senior game, um, but has shown himself to be uh, a very, very capable, but also um, a, a player with so much potential as well in terms of the um, his ability to beat players. Um, his, his he's definitely got a <clears throat> excuse me a sense of um, uh, passing and uh, his vision of the game is very 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 uh, good and and so yeah so if you if it's, there, there are two prizes up for um, award and that's one is player of the year ones and uh, a young player of the year and I think uh, it's going to be Hazard and Hudson Odoi. Okay, Duncan, I think you've got a slightly easier section here. Uh, Liverpool, who do you think? Um, I think it will player of the year. There are two candidates at Liverpool. Um, Sadio Mane has to have a, a, a very good shout, um, given the way he's taken up the mantle of, of being the scorer of important goals for Liverpool for a, a chunk of the season in which um, Mo Salah has not been delivering at the rate uh, he did uh, last season, um, but you know the big difference in Liverpool of of this uh, campaign to last year is obviously in their defensive um, performance. Um, that's not solely down to Virgil Van Dijk. Um, Alisson deserves credit, um, albeit he's shown um, signs of quite significant signs of nerves in the in this run into the title. Um, I would say uh, Joe Gomez has also deserved credit in, in contributing to the, the strength and defence in the first part of the season when he played. But Van Dijk has been the, the key factor in, in um, stitching that defence together together and um, providing that extra touch of quality when they've really needed it um, in certain situations. So he would be the candidate for player of the year. And maybe he'll end up getting the, the, the overall um, vote um, because which is good I think in the sense that centre backs defenders don't often get uh, chosen as players of the years you usually see it, attacking players get it um, but I think he has got a good chance of getting the edge over a Manchester City player um, partly because they're, the choice of player of the year from City is spread over more players and probably possibly the best candidate is Bernardo Silva and I don't think Bernardo Silva has the same kind of media presence and um, perception, general perception of excellence that Van Dijk has. So I would, my, my bet would be Van Dijk pips him in the voting, which is always done before the season actually ends. Uh, remember, so you don't get judged on who's actually won the title. And then Young Player of the Year, um, Joe Gomez obviously would have been a candidate if he'd managed to play the whole season, but um, that injury that... Uh, Klopp told us he would be back um, from inside a couple of weeks, stretched on for several months. Um, I'd like to think that Andrew Robertson um, would be a candidate, but unfortunately he's too old. Otherwise, I'd have given it to um, to the, the the man who learned everything he needed to learn at Dundee United. Um, and uh, but which leaves it with Trent Alexander-Arnold um, as the as the obvious choice in in Liverpool in terms of a player who's, who's played most of the season um, has improved his performances over last year and is is clearly one of the best 
fullbacks in the division at present. Duncan, just on that, interesting point. Uh, Alan Hansen famously said you can't win anything with kids. Do you think that's true now? You look at that Liverpool side, there's very few inexperienced players, same at City. Well, it's an interesting point given that um, there's more focus on young players and there's more money spent on young players than ever in, in the history of the game. Um, you know, most clubs are now uh, shifting the recruitment to try and get uh, players who are teenagers um, and, and have as little can have as little as six six months of, of senior first team football when they're putting in bids of you know over 50, 60, 70 million euros for them. Um, so and you know Manchester United want to focus their their uh, their transfer strategy this summer on on younger players, but actually. You're right. Um, while there are few very young players in the Liverpool squad, um, Manchester City have a, a, I think, a more balanced age profile, and they a lot of their squad have got a lot of years ahead of them. But there are very few uh, young, naive um, first or second season players in there. They've, you know, City have have basically uh, gone and said, right, um, where are the best up and coming? players who have proper experience. So, you know, Bernardo Silva is a good example. Um, Americo Laporte, another good example, who've played three or four years at top level um, in their respective countries and quite often at, at Champions League and are, you know, not quite the finished article, but not far off being the finished article. Um, so the level of risk is is reduced there. Um so yeah, you can't. While you would think the tenor of the the general tenor of recruitment is that you should be able to win things with kids these days, I'm not sure we're going to see a Premier League one with kids anytime in the in the near future. Yeah, you look at that Real Madrid squad that's been so successful in European football over the last three years, and it's exactly the the same scenario. It's uh, predominantly experienced players in. Well, exactly, and, and the. Will restructure that squad this summer as well, Johnny. Um, that's a thing that um, is going to be very um, significant this summer. Madrid um, will look to um, re-energize their squad, as well as Bayern Munich as well, another European giant. Um, they've allowed, I think, and I think they've done it. Um, it I think it's been not beneficial to them to allow their squad to age. Um, quite so much to the point where um, they really have to um, take, maybe take out four or five players in their starting 11 and uh, replace them with younger players. So, um, yeah, it's true. I mean, experience obviously um, always has a place in football and it will always um, have its advantage as well. But um, th- there comes a time in every every successful team every successful squad, where they have to um, effectively cull the older players there and regenerate in terms of um, what they bring through. And I think in this um, coming, uh, this transfer window coming up, um, we're going to see that significantly with Real Madrid and with Bayern Munich. Well, just, just finally on that, um, mm. maybe we'll see Juventus win the Champions League this year. And I think you'll find Juventus have got I agree the most, with that, Duncan. most experienced point of all. And I think you'll also, that what it shows you is um, 
that kind of level of experience at those top games is so important and it's part of why Barcelona um, won against Manchester United comfortably. It's not just about having really talented players, it's about having players who know um, what they need to do in a given situation to get through. And not just that, Duncan, you've got UV, um, the combination of that experience, but with um, the kind of um, youthful but still experienced players like Bernardeschi, Dybala, um, combined with Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, and it's going to, you know, that's that very, very powerful um, mixture of experience and youth, which will, uh, well, has got them, propelled them to this stage. But I think will, you know, I, I agree with you, they could well win this, win it this season. Which they've deliberately recruited. That's the thing. This is strategic. Yeah, 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 yeah. They know what they're doing. They want those players. They're, they're happy to buy players who are older um, if they feel they, they can fit into their system and deliver what they want, which is a Champions League win. And it'd be lovely to see gorgeous Georges Chiellini finally win a Champions League. A great defender, yeah. Um, a great defender who should appeal to any Scottish football fan. But also, he's actually a really gentle man. Really nice, um, uh, entertaining, uh, uh, fine individual who I would love to see win a Champions League for this combination of factors. You've slightly ruined that for me because I always hoped it was a guy that would sort of eat your children. Um, so, so I'm not sure I wanted to know that, Duncan. <laughs> why, would you, why would you want something to eat your children? You can only imagine my DNA. Indeed. <laughs> okay, before we get into any more of this, uh, let's uh, slam this particular transfer window shut. Uh, fear not, though, we are going to be back on Monday to fulfil all your podcasting needs. To continue the debate, you can contact us on Twitter. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. Duncan is at Duncan Castles and Ian is at GarboSJ. We also have our own Transfer Window account, so give us a follow there at Transfer Podcast. We've got a wee um, favour that we'd like to ask you, which is to go on to iTunes and give us a five-star review, as that really, really does help us to move up the iTunes charts when someone looks for a football podcast. So please go on there and do that. The podcast is free. And this is a big favour you'd be doing for us. Until Monday, thanks for listening.